everybody. I'm Shelley James, for those of you who don't know me, and I just wanted to give you a tiny bit of background about the project before John introduces our amazing panellists. This project really grew out of conversations just over a year ago. Through lockdown, I realised that the people around me were really struggling with poor lighting and gathered a team of three sponsors and created a social media campaign for teens, which reached 2.5 million kids around the world and had the most amazing take up with German. It was translated into German and Italian with German kids clicking 2.3 times on a short video about the problems of blue light after dark and, and how that affected their learning and sleep. But they came back to me and said, well, we don't buy the lights. And so I realized that the only way to improve the quality of lighting in our built environment, and that includes access to daylight and to dark, is to speak to the people who write the checks. So I put together the next campaign, which is called Luna Pro, with a series of, again, fantastic sponsors, six sponsors. And that led to conversations all around the world with people trying to find businesses who are spending better money, well, money on better lighting. And it was surprisingly hard to find. But when I found people who were passionate about good quality lighting, business people who spent more money on lighting, they were complete advocates for it. They said it was good for their people, it was good for profit, and it was good for the planet. So you think, well, so how come this isn't happening all the time? How come it's so hard to find people who are really willing to talk about this? And the problem is that we've got a giant sector. I know it's a huge tanker to turn around, split incentives, lack of transparency, a sector that's really been built on shifting boxes rather than finding good lighting solutions. I'm under no illusions. It's going to be hard to make this shift, but the only way to do that is build bridges outside of the lighting sector to people who, um, like our amazing panel today, are not only amazing innovators and thinkers and leaders in their own fields, but also are starting to make a real difference and are going to tell us how they do that. So that's what today is about, is actually seeing what can we do to change the way that we buy lighting uh, and that, as I say, that includes daylight and dark for the built environment, because we know that makes a massive difference. And particularly following COP26, we know that the environment has to be part of every single equation. And that's one of the things that I hope that Mark is going to talk about. So I'm going to introduce my, the, 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 my co-chair, John Bullock, who most of you know, and he's going to introduce our panel of speakers and then take over for the next part of the debate. So... Thanks, Shelley. Thank you, Shelley. Yes, Shelley gave us the, the title of, of, of Drivers for Change to work with. And whenever you see something like that, you go, yeah, well, change is welcome, change is welcome. But we, it begs the question of, of why? What are we doing wrong? What, what, what's happening? You know, what's happening that we need to be doing this? Shelley's touched on that. But I'd just like to look at two ways that change is, is, is necessary. And the first one is that we learn more about ourselves we learn more about the way that we work and the way that we live and then we look at our technology and we realize that there is there is there is a real gap between the way that we have been doing things and the way that possibly we would be better off doing things and there's that requires a change we've also got change where it, external uh, circumstances we have a climate emergency we need to be learning to do the same things differently different things differently but these things will not go away and we can't use our our current thinking to move us into the future but there's another change and this is the one that i know an awful lot of people i, I, I suspect on this call today go that's not the thing 
that's actually not the change that that that, that drives us crazy every day of the week our problem is that we do things badly it's not to say the lighting industry does things badly but the construction industry ends up building poor buildings and they build poor buildings because we have very poor management when it comes to procurement whoever's fault that might be so we don't only need change to look at where we're going in the future and why it is that things like health and well-being climate crises all of these things need to be addressed we actually in order to get to ground zero we've got to start doing some of the old-fashioned stuff much better and that is a real positive change all of this stuff is going to get talked about by our fantastic panel and what we're going to do is each one of our speakers is, is, is going to just do a, a little overview of the world as they see it. And then that'll sort of take up half an hour or so. And then we're going to get into, into the real meat of the discussion, which is when we expect you to be putting questions into the chat so that when we get around to about, I don't know, 10 past, quarter past five, Shelley can be inundating us on, the, on, on, your, on your queries. It's going to be a soft stop. We're not going to suddenly disappear at half past five. If we're, if we're in the middle of a conversation, we will finish the conversation, but we will not be here at six o'clock, I promise. And that's, an, that's probably an easy, because I'll probably be here my, by myself if I was. Right, I'm going to uh, ask Gayatri Unikrishnan, who's, a, who's the uh, VP of Standard Development for Well Building Institute, to kick off these, these, these little five-minute snapshots. Gayatri, after you. Thanks, John. Um, and thanks, Shelley. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining today. This is going to be an amazing event with an incredible lineup of speakers. So I can't wait to hear from everybody. So John and Shelley asked me to give a high level overview in five minutes. So I'm going to take five steps back. We know that there are issues with transparency and there are, not, there are issues with um, how we use light, but I want to take a few steps back. As John mentioned, my name is Gayatri Krishnan. I serve as the concept lead for light and VP of standard development at the International Well Building Institute. We develop and administer the well building standard. It's being used in about 3 billion square feet and impacting millions of people. My team and I pour through and review hundreds of research papers, standards, and codes to develop the rating. And we know two things for sure. Number one, where we sit, sleep, and spend our time has more of an impact on our health than our genetics. Number two, there are decades of research linking human health and the, and the built environment. And the only people who can implement that research are people who develop and run buildings and organizations. People like yourself. The research we have seen tracks with what we all know viscerally or intuitively about light. We evolved to rise with the sun and rest when the sun sets. The close of the spectral characteristics, and now I'm being really high level here, the close of the spectral characteristics of light to sun or fire, the more effective it is in impacting our health. Our ancestors started controlling fire about 2 million years ago, manipulating it for light, heat, and protection. In fact, control of, light, control of fire was seen as the first indication of the technological evolution. We actually still have evolutionary characteristics from then. Recent studies show that the direction of light has an impact on how our bodies respond. Light coming from up and straight is more effective at treating circadian disorders and depression. Light from below has less awakening characteristics at night than light from top. Light from above, the sun, light from below, the fire. Electric lighting, as you all know, started being used commonly about a hundred or so years ago. Electric light showed us possibilities. 
to extend our day, to change how we use spaces. It changed how we design and build. And now, and, and you all know that. And I'll ask you, how many of you have spent 16 hours in total outside over the last week? 10 hours, five, I'm, I'm in the five camp. We're spending more than 90% of our time indoors. We are healing, working, resting, and sleeping indoors. Our children are studying and playing indoors. Electric light in a way has replaced daylight. Just in the last century, we evolved around the cycles of the sun, but our spaces have electric light. And honestly, how we use electric lighting needs some love. Many spaces have light that flicker, that can't be controlled and are just not working. This has a huge impact on health. We know that flicker is directly linked to migraines and seizures. We know light exposure at the wrong time can disrupt our sleep and cause a ton of other issues, including cardiovascular diseases, depression, and obesity. There are decades of studies linking light to our health. Children learn better when they're near windows, they score better in tests, people are more productive and happier when they sit near windows. I know that all spaces don't have windows and can't have daylight, but why can't they have great electric lighting? Strategic lighting, even on limited budgets, can make a difference in people's lives. And that's where you come in. Yes, you, in your work as building professionals have incredible power and a huge responsibility to make that difference. And with that, I leave you with one final thought. What can you do within your circle of control to make a difference in the lives of people who will use the buildings that you work on. Thanks. Marjorie, thank you, you very, very much. Excellent. Following on from that, at a very practical level, we have Graham Edgel, who's the Director of Sustainability and Procurement, that word again, at Morgan Sindel. So, Graham, the world as you see it, please. Well, good afternoon, everybody. And, you know, I'm, I'm already into this in a mile, listening to that first introduction, but I'm going to just whip you through for where we sit as a main contractor that touches uh, most of the sectors of the built environment. Uh, and I guess it's all about the wider sustainable agenda and how we can, uh, in our industry, move it into a more prominent place. Obviously, in with COP26, it became, it flickered higher. But when you look at what we do in our industry, the three big things that are really important to us, which are the social value, the people things, what we do in terms of waste and what we do in terms of carbon. And so if you then break that down into sort of more tangible numbers, uh, for every person in the world, we generate 1.26 tonnes of CO2. The built environment, and you know, you can probably pick holes on some of my numbers, but is responsible for 45% of the carbon emissions, of which 27% of that is in domestic properties and 18% is in the rest of the things that we do. And so that's a, that, that is a massive place and a baseline to start from. And then we look at the way we as contractors and designers can actually start to influence those people issues which were so well put before I came onto the, the scene here in this call is we have an absence of data and real measurable standards that, that not in terms of pockets but in terms of validation and accreditation and consistency and you know when you're in a capex driven arena like we are with low margins it becomes qu quite a challenge to actually get all of us together to, to collaborate and I think our industry is 
one of the very best to do that. We're better than nearly all of the others, but we need now to rally behind the flag. So in a sense of moving forward, we look at lighting and the way that works within the sustainable agenda. There isn't a, a platform for the circular economy. And so, and where there is, it's inconsistent. And so we as a contractor, we can't even bring in the well-being people factor because we're still worrying about the capex, the, the, the where we started from, when we're going to get rid of it later on, does it go into a skip and all those other things. And yet the, the intent is there, but we, but we can't find the consistent solution to, to move it forwards. So what we do do is we move into devalue engineering the project to get the capex down to try and find ways to solve it at the back end. But it's often too late. And so what we don't do is influence at the right time. And I guess for me to highlight the risk factor, which is a barrier when you're on a low margin, do we take a gamble to, to, to go for more innovative product, more innovative solutions? It's quite difficult. And I, and I think we get driven probably too much by compliance, governance, and maybe the new EU taxonomy, which will catch us up. But in the meantime, the reason why I wanted to participate is the next thing on the agenda for us is to drive up the collaboration, working together, finding solutions and sharing the risk. And that's really me for the moment, John. Thank you. Thank you, Graham. Okay, cracking on and, and working together. Phil Marsden, uh, Project Director for Muse Developments. I think you're going to pick up that, pick that argument and run with it, aren't you, Phil? Yeah, yeah. Afternoon, I'm Phil Marsden from, from Muse. Yeah, a lot of links actually with what, what Graham was just saying there. We're a we're a national property developer, we're part of the modern We specialise in large urban region, mixed-use projects, very often delivered in partnership with local authorities. And, you know, we take great pride in creating vibrant and sustainable places that are focused on improving the communities we work within. We've got a really strong sustainability strategy based on five key objectives, reducing carbon, improving biodiversity, health, well-being reducing waste and social value. And we're working really hard to push our performance against those objectives. You know, it's clear our industry needs to make some radical changes, really focusing particularly on carbon and energy efficiency if we're going to make progress as a sector in tackling climate change. And, you know, that clearly includes how we, how we work with lighting. We acknowledge lighting's got a key role to play in our schemes, creating the best possible environments we can for communities and people who work in our offices, live in our homes, spend time in our leisure spaces, our outdoor public realm spaces. And we want to create places that are interesting, vibrant, welcoming, safe, comfortable, energy efficient, and clearly having well-designed, good quality and interesting lighting is a very important aspect to that. And when you look at our five key objectives in our sustainability strategy, I think with the exception of biodiversity, lighting's got a very important role to play in all of them within our industry and can only sort of really comment upon what happens in the commercial sector lighting's probably not often given the appropriate level of attention and thought i think that's really that's really needed i think if you if you went and looked at most new open plan offices or residential developments you'd, you'd probably see very similar light fittings with very similar light levels and different and the same sort of tones and colors used you know it, typically in the commercial world lighting's designed by the m e designer and Probably only when there's some sort of feature or specialist lighting element, there's a specific lighting consultant come on board. And this approach 
maybe needs to be reconsidered and you know is, is lighting important enough to warrant its own specialist consultant on every project it's clearly a very functional requirement for lighting and that probably drives the design in most instances you know basically meeting a certain lux level and energy output but from from the personal experience whenever we've tried to be more innovative and inventive adventurous with a briefer lighting we we have ended up with a ridiculously expensive and probably not very sustainable solution actually and it's fair to say probably along with most other elements of construction there remains an absolute focus like graham said on, on capital costs but not so much on the full life cost and I think if we're really going to start moving forward, we need to involve the carbon cost and, and overarching social value into advice and decision making, including now that on lighting as well. In terms of procurement, a regular pattern we often see is that, you know, we'll get a, des a design done for lighting that gets priced. Quite often the scheme's coming over budget and the contractor and subcontractors come up with a, a new design at a heavily reduced price for lighting. That's, that's quite often the case. And I was quite, I find it quite hard to understand actually how a subcontractor can come up with a solution for a lighting scheme that looks the same, performs the same, but costs significantly less. And that, that does seem to be, from a client's perspective, a bit of sort of dark art involved in the buying gains and procurement chains around lighting that's far less transparent actually than some of the elements um, we deal with. And I'm keen to understand how we can involve manufacturers, suppliers earlier on in the process to gain the benefit of their specialist knowledge, look for more innovative solutions, gain a full understanding of capital, life cycle costs, carbon costs, alongside energy use and performance. So yeah, as a, as a, you know, as a responsible developer, we're committed to driving change, creating interesting, vibrant places, and we accept there may be some additional capital costs needed, but there's challenges which as an industry we need to come together to look to address in all aspects as, as, well, as well as lighting. Thanks, Thanks John. Phil. Thank you. Simon, the dark arts of lighting specification and engineering specification in general. Simon is uh, Director for Sustainability at, at Cundall, who've been doing great work on this one. So from, from the perspective of the the engineering side of things, actually creating those specifications which immediately are then put at risk, how are you seeing the world? Yeah, well, I think it's interesting. We've we've been looking at the implications of lighting for the last few years, and uh, I lead our sustainability team. And when we look at sustainability, we look at people and planet, and there's always been a mismatch of focus. So at the moment, there's very strong focus on the planet and net zero carbon and circular economy, which I'll come to. But six or seven years ago, the main focus was on people. And with the launch of the World Building Standard, we saw a huge rise in the interest of well-being and design. And it, we were the first adopters of the well-building standard in Europe in our office, and we've delivered over 50% of the certified space now in the UK. And we've been really engaging with a lot of clients around uh, well-being, both using the well-building standard and, and just generally the principles of, of health and well-being. And it's been very interesting over the last few years, the disconnect between the known benefits of health and well-being, including lighting, and the actual procurement. So we, we regularly go into organizations and talk about the benefits of, of designing for healthier spaces, the, the benefits of better lighting, the benefits of, of achieving uh, the well-building standard. Everyone is generally enthusiastic and very keen, can see the benefits. We know that 90% of the cost to most organizations is their staff. They understand that the financial benefits of improving the quality of the space. But we don't always see that realized in design and performance. And that's because there seems to be a disconnect between 
those who get the benefit uh, for the quality of the space and those building it or procuring it quite often you have a property division who are being held to account on the cost per square meter of development they can see the benefit of going for higher wellness standards but it, they're not being judged on that performance and therefore ultimately they don't go down that route we need to see more joined up thinking where we're looking at the operational cost not just of the building but the people inside the building and the whole organization and bringing that to the forefront. And again, where we're doing speculative lighting designs, as Phil was saying, we're, we're working with developers. The problem is they don't see the benefit of that return on investment. The, the occupiers see the, the benefit in terms of the improved productivity, the improved uh, performance of the employees. And there isn't the incentive, incentive for them to go down the route of designing for more wellness. There's obviously marketing potential of, of selling a well-enabled building or well-certified building, but it's not fully realized in design and quite often gets valued engineered out. And over the last six years, we've, we've definitely seen huge interest in well-being and designing for wellness, but it's really not driven through to the design process. And, and that seems to be this disconnect between the people who benefit and the people paying for the cost of construction and they need to be brought together in order to circle the loop and what's been interesting over the last couple of years has been the rise of net zero carbon and the climate emergency and to be honest we don't see very much competing in terms of healthy buildings they can be low energy most requirements in the well building standard can be met using low energy solutions and lighting is a typical example lighting we need to focus on access to natural daylight which is low energy and, and the best in terms of health and well-being. So we don't have to think it's either a healthy building or a low carbon or low energy building. The key is getting them both to work in tandem uh, together. But again, it's, it's problematic between the disconnect between the end users and the people actually specific, specifying and procuring the systems. Okay, Simon, thank you very much. Thank you very much for that. David Geddes is director of CO2 Target, and David's focus is on producing specification, maintaining a specification, and seeing that specification through to completion. So, David, you seem to have a particular relationship with your clients. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Firstly, hello, everybody. I apologize, my screen is sideways. I can't work out how to get it up right the right way. So I apologize. You're all seeing me in the side. So yeah, so hello. So suppose we are talking about keeping control of specification and what we do for our clients. And we've seen many projects fail at the junction between specification and procurement. And if we are going to build back better and ultimately benefit the projects and the client, we've got to better understand the process of equipment selection. So I suppose when I, I've been in the industry for a while, as I'm sure a lot of you have, and I, the traditional route that I was used to was a client would then employ an architect or design team, then turn a contractor, then a subcontractor, a wholesaler, and then a manufacturer. It was never quite clear who was keeping control of that. And someone's mentioned earlier about contractors coming in or subcontractors coming in with a different, different specification. We're not quite sure what happens to the cost layers, but we do know that it goes up and therefore that will jeopardize the project. And I'm not sure everyone in the chain understands the knowledge, the solution and the knowledge that you need to have in order to offer these solutions. So through frustration, we changed the way we went to, we sit directly with the client as their expert wing of their of the company. We identify what the client wants to achieve in their project. So it was a new build. We look to 
how do they want to run the building? Are they, is it an investment? Do they want to you know, live with the building for the lowest life cycle cost? Whatever that approach might be, if it's retrofit, we'll look at what's actually feasible to, to retrofit in, in the building. And so all of that comes under a feasibility study we do for the client. And once we understand the client's needs, we then sit down with the manufacturers and we work out with them what is possible. And then we take back a costed solution, which includes an insulation price and it's just a guide, but it's a pretty good guide. And the client then understands that we've achieved all of their important elements. That is then signed off and the specification is then met, it's sealed. At that point, we then engage with their team to go through the traditional route. And we don't underestimate the importance of all the people in this chain and the importance that they bring to deliver the process. But through our process, we bring clarity to the design at the outset. And if there is going to be a change, it might be through financial, it could be through lead times, it could be through a performance specification. But if there's going to be a change, that change is assessed by us and we sit down with the client to let them see what ramifications that will have to the project. It might be really beneficial, it might not be, but whatever the change is, nobody can make that change without our rubber stamp. So we are a technology-led business. We understand technologies, the strengths and the weaknesses. We understand in lighting, for example, the difference between a wireless technology that uses 868 frequency against Zigbee. And we understand why one should be used over another. But I think we, and somebody mentioned earlier, you know, I think we de-risk the projects of the client because we look at an end-to-end -end solution. We're looking at from the placement of the chip onto the LED board, onto the subboard and whether, what driver is going to be, what forward current we're looking at, what thermal heat sinks we're looking at, what optics we're looking at. So we really don't leave an awful lot um, to be discovered in, in the future. We kind of do it all at the feasibility stage. And we believe that we future-proof the sites because of that. And we strongly believe as a company that strong specifications deliver a better project. So that's really all I've got to say on that and you know, answer any questions that people might have. Okay. Hey, David, uh, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, to the point. Florence, Florence Lamb, Global Lighting Design Director at ARA, with an, an enormous amount of experience about putting lighting schemes and lighting specifications together. And thank you very much for your time today. And what would you like to share with us? Thank you, John. And thank you, Shirley, for organising this event. So lighting is ubiquitous within the built environment, creating safer cities after dark illuminating workplaces and lighting our homes. Wherever people are, light exists. So therefore, as design professionals, we carry huge responsibility on the designs we create, specific specification decisions we make, and project installation we deliver for the people, place, and planet. So my response to the provocations on change is threefold. First, design for humanity. Second, decarbonization, and third, about circular. So first of all, design for humanity, less is more. The industry should demand design that values the aesthetics, the quality, longevity, human health and safety, material impact of the lighting systems, the energy efficiency, optimal maintenance, the reuse retrofit mechanism, and also recycle with recycle being the last resort. So in short, the industry, the society, we should no longer afford 
poor design. And the second point about uh, decarbonization is that it's time to focus on embodied carbon. On the one hand, I would advocate embodied carbon should be regulated in a similar way how regulations on eco-design and energy labeling are reducing operational energy. But on the other hand, we can't wait for accurate and comprehensive measurement or regulation before taking action. So what are the obvious quick wins that are available to us today? At the recent COP, COP26, Arab actually announced our commitment to measure whole life carbon for all of our building designs from April 2022. This means we are committing every one of our designers and engineers to establish and gather good data about the carbon embodied within all our designs, including lighting. So to enable us to radically improve our designs as well as how we specify to reduce embodied carbon. Some of you would have heard of uh, the Luminaire Broker, which is a tool that we are using to help accelerating the change, the potentially a key to unlock the, and incentivize the industry for change. And the third point I want to make is on circular. The transition to a circular economy has been highlighted as um, a necessity to achieve zero carbon economy. We have this desirable and feasible hypothesis that the lighting industry can expand into recovering light, luminaires, materials, and lighting components from buildings and feeding back into the lighting supply chain. But to scale the circular principles in mass market, it needs a viable business model. A significant barrier for reuse is the associated risk. How risks are perceived, shared, and resolved will rely on the relationships across the value chain beyond lighting sector. And the circular principles viewing existing buildings as material banks is expected to shift the onerous of ownership of existing material assets to new clients, including lighting manufacturers, suppliers, asset owners, and insurers. So this means the role of design will need to evolve as the golden thread through circular lighting, whole life carbon. So this is that way, over to Mark. Thank you, Florence. Yes, and just sort of finishing off, and, and no, last but no means least, Mark, Mark Riddler, who's the head of lighting at BDP, but also here as co-founder of the Green Light Alliance, which I've just about managed to get myself in through the door in, and very exciting it is too. Mark, just round off the, these overviews for us, please. It's, it's been so much really interesting uh, topics raised. Um, I just kind of want to... We're struggling uh, to hear you, Mark. I'm sorry. Sorry. Can you hear me now? Is that any better? Uh, it's a bit... Yeah, it's not as good as it used to be. But anyway... I've changed nothing. Well, okay. Well, you just press on and we'll just listen more carefully. Okay. I speak slowly. It's important to consider product in the context of the project cycle. If we're going to make a meaningful change. On our own designers, we have our hands on multiple levers, and some of them have been mentioned today. Daylight, an intelligent interpretation of code rather than a slavish engineering approach. Disaggregating product from buildings rather than integrating them so that they can be um, removed and recycled and reused. And indeed, of course, product specification. 
but only when working with others is any of this of any significance. So for instance, if we are choosing to disaggregate versus integrate within a build project, that has an aesthetic impact, which we're gonna to have to get our co-designers and our clients to buy into. They need to understand why we're proposing something that might be innovative. We need to take them on that journey and we need to get their buy-in. More significantly than that though, is when we come out of the design stage and actually start building and operating these things. So for instance, contractors, if, if they don't build what we design, then what we design is really of very little value to anyone. And it certainly won't achieve the sustainability target we have. And, but to do that, we need to, we, contractors need to be given an even chance for actually achieving what, what the targets are. So we need our clients to engage with contractors in a different way. We need to, in some way, understand what the, the specification and design is really doing just rather than compliance and cost. And we need to help them as, um, as designers, but we also need willing ears in terms of the, of the contractors. And we, we need proper contract governance so that the race to the bottom isn't the only sign of success. For operation, I think this is an even more difficult one because even if we've got to the fantastic position where we've designed sustainable designs, we specify sustainable products, it's got bought, it's got installed. If the operators of building are then just throwing that away in landfill, it's a gain of no value. And that is an even bigger challenge for our clients because it's this divide which has already been talked about between CapEx and OpEx. And there is a big cultural divide in our client, I've, I've observed. And that is something that we really need to work together collaboratively to try and solve. So in summary, I've, I've come to the table with two hats, one as a designer BDP, but also as a, a member of the Green Light Alliance. Because as, as a designer and as a member of the lighting community, one of the most important things we can do is talk um, to our clients, to our contractor partners, to the people that operate our projects, with manufacturers, with academia, which is why networking organisations like the Green Line Alliance and seminars like this are so important. And before we leave that talking, talking thing, which talking's good, but does it do anything? Does it achieve anything? I would point to the existence and the birth of TM66, which is the new circular economy standard, which the Society of Light and Lighting have just published. Very much a document owned by the SNL, but it was born out profound engagement and they halfway through rescoped what their project was because they engaged. So actually collaboration and talking has an impact. It really can make a change. So let's do more of it. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Right, well, that's given us a, a pretty uh, good, I, I think cross view, uh, around the piece of of the built environment and and what we're doing with it, something that I've always I've always wondered, and I just like to sort of just throw this out to to everybody here: um, Do we have enough chairs around the project table? Should there be more chairs with different people 
yeah, I, I, I wonder who who truly represents the client at a project meeting and, and a client who might understand everything that we've been talking about, but that client's not there. And so we end up with with project meetings being driven by project managers and contractors. So just I'd, I'd just put your, stick your hand up and just give me a clue as to do we need a new type of consultant in there, a new type of quantity surveyor, if you like, except we're looking, we're not looking at money, we're looking at different types of quantities, environmental quantities, health and well-being quantities. Simon. You say the client's not there. The client's not always known. So if it's like if, if you're building a building for an end user, there may be a client who is present. If it's a speculative building, there isn't the end users or client present at that point. And even where there is a client, it's normally the property wing of that client. So if you're working with a big corporate, you won't be talking to the people who are going to be operating the building or using the building. You're talking to a development arm of that organization who, who are building. So there generally isn't someone with a vested interest around the table in the performance of the space. There are more and more projects now that have sustainability champions. So my team were we originally would be doing small sustainability commissions over the last 20 years. Now we're more integrated into design team and project teams involved setting the brief early stages and helping. And part of that brief will be the well-being piece, things like the energy performance, the circular economy strategy, the well-being of those things. And those things are listed out as part of the sustainability strategy in, in terms of key performance indicators and indicators. And those become red lines, which the design team need to work towards. So I'd say it's you don't need the client around the table, but having the client is always better. But I think as long as you have clear performance requirements and those are red lined, you can achieve the same outcomes. But we need to be clear what those performance requirements are. And for most schemes, there isn't a requirement for lighting. If we can put the lighting performance, as we were talking about earlier, in terms of the energy budget, the carbon budget, also the end of life circular economy and have a requirement in terms of the well-being uh, requirements as well, then it's much easier to make sure that that's maintained by the project team as they go through things like value engineering. Not all of it is uh, quantitative. A large element of it is qualitative. That's why you need the client at the table. Because they need to understand, believe, and advocate. If it just comes down to numbers, then... Um, you lose a massive amount. Okay, can I just make the point, Jim, uh, you're a guest, so you can't come out and play. All right, just put it in the chat box, my friend. Um, so, so Shelley, do you want to speak? Because it's your gig. No, I just, I was just actually just wanted to relay Guy's comment, which I think is apt, and that lots of people, lots of lighting designers I've spoken to say, actually, there's a reluctance to pay for another consultant at all. So adding another a lighting designer or anything else. So adding another line to the to the to the system could be something that's that's problematic. So I'm gonna actually just read Guy says, considering some clients are still reluctant to pay for a lighting designer, having yet another consultant around the table with associated fees seems like a non-starter. So just I was just gonna throw that in because I thought that was it's no, a it's good fine. it's a good reality check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, Phil. Yeah, maybe I can give a client's perspective on this then. In that, um, <laughs> Simon's point's interesting. We're, if you take us as a client, we're a developer trader, right? So we don't 
we don't own the buildings that we build. So there's a level of complexity there where we don't necessarily know who that end user is going to be. And you may, you may say some developer traders don't then have an interest in how that building performs after it's been sold, but that, that's not the case, to be fair, with most responsible developer traders. And actually, there's a, there's a real commercial approach to, to building buildings that perform very well because they, they sell better and they let better. So even if you take the responsibility bits on site, there's a, there's a commercial angle there. So as a client, we'd always be at the table. We would take part in every single design team meeting, as Simon would know, because Simon, Simon works with us. And, and like Simon mentioned, one of the key roles we've recently started um, pointing is, is a sustainability consultant who has that wider holistic overview of the whole project and, and looks after the whole sustainability piece. And that's been really, really valuable for us. In terms of lighting designers, we, we would use lighting designers if if we got genuine value for that from that process. And I think this might be a bit controversial, but I, historically, I, I I don't think we have. I think it's, it, I, I, I honestly couldn't say that from, from the projects we've worked on where we've appointed a specific line designer, we've got into those really good discussions about overall energy usage and performance and whole life cost and, and carbon. So there, there isn't a reluctance from us to add another line into the appraisal to cover a, a specific role if it's needed, but there's got to be a value there for it. And maybe we just need to use different principles. But that, that's something we would certainly be up for. Talked about quantities first. And I think there's a there is a new there's a new aspect to every decision on a project now. And it's you know you always have the cost quality program sort of triangle, didn't you? Well now we've got we've got ESG and, and that's covering carbon and social value. And for us we're we're starting to try and embed that fourth angle into every single decision we make so okay something might cost more but it's got less carbon it performs socially or whatever therefore that's a decision factor and somehow getting that measured and quantified um into that process is really really important but quite difficult actually i i reckon that we could spend the rest of the day on the existential question oh i'm sorry florence go on carry on thank you i just lost which hand i should be raising because i did the electronic <laughs> hand as well <laughs> Okay, I really like to answer this question as well, because if John, you were asking about the change, and I think this change needs to be a lot bolder than just adding another consultant to the table. And are we talking about virtual table or physical table as well? So I think the change is about the currency. It's not the pounds or euros. It is the carbon. But we don't know what the carbon value is. And we need to be able to probably properly value that from a sustainable financing point of view. I remember sort of 10, 15 years ago, we talked about LEDs. Every time you go to a client with LEDs, you need to demonstrate payback and everything to justify cost, even though it's a good idea. But when the, the, the kind of the, uh, the rental tenancy changed that if you haven't got the box on LED lighting ticked, you won't be able to let out that, that office space. No more, no more feasibility studies. The client just asked for LED change immediately. So I think it's more than just the, the, the kind of the incremental education that is important, but there's something quite fundamental where the value is articulated differently. And I like previously there's the panelist speakers talking about the carbon value, the ESG. Those are the new currency that we need to articulate what that really means. We were talking about healthy lighting, impact on planet. We need to convert into a different way of calculating. And rather than adding another consultant to the table, I think where, where I'm positing is, is that designers need to expand and evolve 
their knowledge and um, the way how they articulate talk about projects that encompass the social value, the value, the impact on, on the planet environment, biodiversity, all these need to play into it, then it's the more comprehensive argument. And the clients will know that. I mean, the data will be transparent. They don't just see that. They don't even need to be there to make that decision because it just happened. Right. Okay. What I was, th 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 thank you for that. And I, I'm just picking up on what, what Mark said and, and what Phil said about if we've got, if we have a, a quantitative based requirement, because we talk about red lines uh, and, and, and things that, that, that should be absolutely crucial. And who, who establishes the red lines, I wonder? I, I had my ear bent all morning talking about the work that the Department for Business Energy and Industrial Strategy is talking about with new energy standards. And, and, and they really like the idea that every light source will, sorry, every fixture, every light source will be minimum of 120 lumens per watt. But that's it. It's, that, it's just one number. And as long as you can satisfy that one number, that will meet the energy requirements. And of course, we know that's the nonsense because we understand system design. And it's not just about putting in a thousand light fittings that, that are working at 120 lumens per watt when you only need 100. But who deals with the quality? How do we how do we get that across that position where the gulf seems to be? This is where the quality sits. This is where the money sits. And the clients invest in the, the client investment is on the money side. Or is it? Is it a gulf? Is there a Venn diagram? Do we get an overlap? If we do have an overlap, who's in the overlap? Who has the client's ear? Phil, you don't listen to lighting designers because you can't see the point of us. So who tells you what good lighting means? Well, uh, normally on a project, we at our lighting is designed by, uh, by M&E consultants who obviously have uh, knowledge of that, but that we, I don't think they'd say they were experts in lighting design. I'd say that, but they're adequate. Yeah, I say it does a job. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if the standards change, if the standards shifted, either way, either they get worse or better, that is that that would be they would be the criteria that they would be working to. So perhaps the influence that we need to be talking about is who controls the quality of the specification. It comes back to the thing that David was 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 talking about earlier, that you can't guarantee a. Go on, D David. Remind us if you if you don't get the specification right, what happens? I, I think that I, mean, I, I, I sort of, well, just the comments we made. Nobody in this room or this webinar would go and design an air source heat pump without an ME full ME design, because they don't believe they can achieve that job themselves. If I've heard once, we've all have heard it. I've got a mate who does that within lighting. You know, it, it's so frustrating, and that's why we sit with the clients. I think I don't think lighting designers are given the respect that they should be given for the role they, they, they do. We've been to a big site in London a couple of months ago. They've designed the lighting down to the new SEBSA guidelines, so it just gets over the bar. Brilliant. The new tenant is a legal company. Their lighting requirements are a minimum of 500 lux because they're reading technical documents all day. So... They, they're now getting the, the, the tent, the, the owner of the building to pull out the lighting and put in a new set of lighting. Now, nobody listened to them. And I just think that there's so many times that we are involved in a project because either there's a push on 
budget. And the easiest thing is to re-engineer it or go and get something dreadful. The client then has to pick up the pieces over time. By employing someone who, you know, and there is a cost layer, but there's a reason for that because there's value add to it. There's a number of jobs that because we design from end to end, you know, it might be a plug and play solution. We're taking out cabling solutions, we're putting in wireless technology. So actually we, we, we take out costs from the contractor, we give the client a better longer term life cycle product that's more sustainable. And I just think that, I don't think a lot of the time when we sit there, the lighting can be pushed around quite a lot it's quite a small element of the build quite often. And I just think it needs to be given its place. And I think that there's lots of LED panels out there that we've all seen that they might have a warranty of five years, but they're not usable light for five years. And sure, people have done it, they've installed it, it's been signed off, brilliant. But in two or three years time, it's not fit for purpose. And if we're talking about embedded carbon, and we're talking about life cycle, surely a product that can be retrofitted with new lighting or new LED solutions or drivers that commercially last 100,000 hours. So we're not just pulling them out and throwing them in the ground. I think that's a more interesting conversation. And I think that there is then a real value add. And we were sitting with a senior client uh, a couple of weeks ago. They've just had all the students come back. They've employed 6,000 across the UK. And all the students were talking about was this was the most equal building in London. This was Briam Excellent when it was refurbished five years ago, and they couldn't get enough of it. And it was really interesting. We've done our we've done our redesign for them on all the lighting. We've kept all the, 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 the body. All we've done is put retrofit gear trays in, all with new wires, lighting, and new emergency and everything else. But you know, ultimately we've kept everything we can because that was sustainable. So I I, I would argue that if anybody's not sure about what a lighting designer or somebody that's going to hold the specification strong, I would urge them to get someone along and then they might just see why I and a number of people think that there's a value add to have us along. Picking up on what David's saying, can we talk about the CapEx OPEX argument? Graham, what would your response be to that about value add for lighting in this setting? I think that from a con thank you, Shelley. From a contractor's point of view, I think all we require is clarity. And the fact that every time there is a change, that adds risk to us because it adds cost. And so it's it's clarity for us. And and I think that the currency and and Florence, I would support a hundred percent that there is a, there is another currency at the table now apart from the pound note. And I think that doing the right thing at the right time. So. It's clarity, Shelley, for us. Stick with it. That's what we want to see. When you say clarity, is that in terms of the, the, the red line? Yeah. Well, I think the two things. I think that you know we can only trust the design community to design and and raise their game to the sustainable standard. But once they've done that, we're more than happy not to devalue engineer. Is what I'm trying to say because that is what happens in truth if the red line isn't held. So you need to know where the red line is so that you know what to hold. Correct. Right. And that yeah. needs to be based on, as in, to Simon's point, uh, to, to Florence's point, an environmental standard. And whether, but I'm just worrying, wondering what that means in terms of the quality that Gayatri and others would say. Do, well, is that, does, do you think, do you feel there's a tension there? 
Well, but I think there is. But from a contractor's point of view, our influence at that stage, I've got to be honest, we actually then get down to the CapEx, OpEx thing, which says to us, look, we've already been told that it, it is X, so we will provide X. Uh, the trouble is that we even add to the problem is that probably we haven't considered all of the ESG type and the, the well-being elements early enough, but we actually make it worse because cash will come into the equation and the, the M&E contractor is also under the same financial pressure. Perhaps one of one of the yeah, issues, I'm, I'm going to come back to, sorry, who's that? Florence has a hand up there. Sorry, Florence. I just want to add that when we talk about the ESG, it is actually even beyond the CapEx and OPEX, it's at the investor's level. So imagine developers develop something, they, they probably don't have all the cash they want. They would look for investors, pension funds, et cetera. And those are now putting pressure that if the projects doesn't sort of tick the boxes with ESG, you won't get the funding. So the ESG, is a, you, you can look at well-being or anything else, but now it's not just one number. It's also they're going to track trajectory as well. So it's not just establish where the bottom baseline is, but it's how one can actually improve from the baseline what a normal spec office building expectation is, but how you can exceeding that. The better ones will probably get more chance they will get a funding. So it's really, it's, yes, the currency back to there, but it is translated to different currency. When the requirements then change, then the needs for good lighting, good design that have the long longevity will become the requirement rather than things that could put up as a cat A and get uh, put into waste straight away because someone coming in and strip everything out. Hopefully those is not gonna happen, but we need to work at a really the highest level and not just stick with the current system and how we do tweak and incremental changes uh, in bits and pieces. Okay, Gayatri, your hands up. Um, I just wanna continue a thread that Florence started. ESG is a major driver in investment decisions and how developers get the investments. SDGs and mapping to SDGs is another driver that we have seen. And in addition to that, there is one more that we, I think, need to bring to the table. And those are the consumers. There are people, there's increasing awareness among people about the quality of their spaces. It's increasing at a much higher rate than we ever thought possible before COVID. And there are millennials and millennials have received a lot of flack, but Gen Z, is also coming to the workforce and they are not here to negotiate. So we need to, we need to understand that there is, we are going to have make a stand and make a presence known when we make those decisions. And lighting designers are not on the table, yes, but they are important and that awareness is growing as well. It's much better than it was five years ago. So that we are on an upward trajectory here. Same with acoustic designers. And yes, HVAC folks are on the table and have been on the table, thanks to Ashray, et cetera. But lighting designers are finding their way to the table. It's, it's so much better. The, the questions that I'm receiving five years ago, which was, it's too expensive to do daylight modeling. And you're like, how much are you pay, paying for that sofa that you have in your lobby there? Uh, but now it's uh, now people are. That's not even a question. Daylight modeling is and daylight and good daylight is like a given in buildings. 
So there's a lot that we can do with what we already have, and but we need to understand who's who's got the capital, who's got the money, and what what is driving the decisions around that. Can somebody tell me who's writing these briefs then? Because if if I agree with every, with, with everything that's been said here, there is no doubt that we're moving forward. There is there is no doubt that the benefits are being are being met. But you are, we are reliant upon at the moment an enlightened, sorry, an enlightened client body to pull it forward. But I don't see where the push is. So the, one of the things that I think has been notoriously poor is, is the quality of, of technical specification within, within a lighting spec. Or maybe it was just me who's just been lazy. But the idea that you can swap out one fitting for another and nobody notices the difference because the spec hasn't been altered. But clearly, the spec has been changed because what you get, what gets swapped out, was better than what get the, the what you actually install. Who is actually creating that quality brief that the client can sign off on, that the designers can work to, and that people like Graham can say, "We know where we stand." I ask if anybody's got it. Uh, oh, Mark first, then Florence. Um, we do, because I think actually it's sufficiently complex. That, they, that, that people need a hand in doing it. And one of the things that I was reacting to one of the speakers who was saying, often the lighting uh, comes is designed and then found to be an outside budget. First thing to do when we come to the table is what's the budget? And that, that's not, that's CapEx budget, but increasingly it will be, it, I think it will be OPEX budget. It increasingly is about circularity and embedded carbon and, as it always has been about which sustainability standards are you going for? Is it Bream, the well, whichever, because all of those codify the design. And normally it's the designer's role is about the complex balance between competing demands upon a design. It's very much our role to, um, to interpret, define that and interpret it in terms of quality. So that clients and designers can make quality decisions down the line rather than only being about cost. So we want to reduce the cost of this element, fine. You can do it in these ways. These are the impacts on the design and the users because that's the other thing that we do when we're, when we're writing that brief. We do it from the perspective of those people that are going to use, inhabit and encounter our designs. We are their voice in the room at the beginning of the project, and we are we see ourselves as the defenders of those those voices, those people, all the way through the process. Okay, thanks, Florence, and then Phil. So I mentioned earlier that uh, poor design will have no place anymore. We just can't afford poor design, but same as poor specifications, and because that is a very critical part, how. A, lighting designers would translate their designs into something that can be handed over to the contractors, the, this, the, the manufacturers, the installers to actually realize the, the design itself. And the integrity of the specs, there's always been an issue. And, and that's why this kind of the integrity, how can we make sure the integrity stays all the way to the end of the project, but also beyond as well from a maintenance and reuse retrofit perspective. And, and that's why I think data has a sort of huge role to play in sort of 
giving this of golden thread, whereas where we're talking about the BIM model we hand over together with the spec data in the BIM that get handed over. That's that's kind of hold 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 on to this contractors and to the client response to the client is this is not not going to change. If at that point the cost is going to be able to pay for that, then it should just carry forward rather than just expecting any savings by cutting spec because everything got signed up. It's not just the lighting performance that was originally designed for, but it's the carbon, where the, the fixtures are, are sourced, all the kind of circular requirements are built into the whole concept of the building. It's not just one element, it's one element will impact others that the, the, the project itself will lose its integrity if not so hold on. So that transparency through data is such an important point to make. Okay, thanks. Phil? Yeah, I think just a couple of interesting points on specification for me is what, what, what most clients, I guess, would tend to do in terms of M&E spec is they, they develop a performance specification. And that probably wouldn't ordinarily go into the minutiae of what every single light fitting is. That's, that's the norm, I think, at the moment. And maybe that then causes problems later on because that then opens up what actually goes in that building in terms of light fittings for the contractor and supply chain. And I think the, the reasons for that, I, I think it, it probably comes down to, again, to procurement. And, and I think that there's a nervousness, particularly around M&E, where if you start specifying very specific products and manufacturers, you then get beholden to cost uplifts. And, 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 and that, that is a problem in, in the market, really. If, if, if a supplier is seeing their name in a specification, guess what? The cost goes up. And there's definitely a nervousness around uh, around that. And I think the other thing Mike mentioned is he said, you know, when we come to the table and we, we get a client's brief and then we start working up the specification, first thing we say is, what's the budget? I bet if you asked 95% of quantity surveyors what the budget is for the lighting in a cost plan, they would have no idea. You know, they'd be able to tell you we've got however much pound for square metering for the M&E systems. They will not be able to break that down into how much that, that there is for lighting on a scheme. And actually, that, you know, is there a skills gap there in terms of the quantity surveying advice, particularly focusing on M&E, maybe even lighting? You know, it's, it's, it is, it's always a bit of a, like I said before, a bit of a dark art, the M&E, in terms of costing. Um, so maybe that's something we need to think about. Right. Okay. The idea that if you specify a particular manufacturer, the cost will go up because they think it's Christmas. I've never seen that. Any comment from anybody else? Graham? Well, then I'm sorry, John. I, I, it happens every day of the week. But also, from my point of view, in sheer procurement, once, once that name is in the frame, we, we do see the elevation in cost. Okay. Well, I hope the manufacturers who are listening to us today are taking notes of this. Mark? Yeah, I recognise that. And it's one of the things that we do is we run mini tenders in the project. So that, um, to help on budgets, first of all, we can benchmark from our previous experience of projects and, and, and give you not only a pound per square metre, but actually but this was the type of project. So you can benchmark your quality aspiration and sustainability aspiration and all the various other things to a, a, a previously delivered project. But also then when we're in design, and particularly at Reba stage three, which I think is a very critical stage for establishing uncertainty, is that we will, we will market test the specifications at that stage. So the you as a 
build construction client team have something to nail them to rather than just a Christmas present. Yeah, I do recognise that. That is one of the challenges of so, uh, a single course specification. Florence, I was going to—I was just going to say that uh, this 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 feeds back into your into your data issue, doesn't it? Yeah, and and also maybe I'll just talk a little bit about um, the Luminaire broker. Basically, it is a it is a specification web platform that's where the the, the designers, the architects, the specifiers will post the Luminaire specification requirements out to an open platform, where any manufacturers can look at that and sort of come up with any particular product that is best match. The decisions are tracked and traced. So, and and the reason why we want to do that is make sure that's the choice of uh, manufacturers are purely from performance base rather than biased with donuts or anything like that. And we also challenge our own designers to making sure that when they said the market test is truly market testing on all bases, particularly with, with, when we try to talk about circular, locally sourced materials, how they transport materials, how they make, we, we are building all those circularity feature integrated in this tool so that how decisions are made is as transparent as it can be and we can carry forward. And so I think it is just taking step to say we are committed, but not just talking, not just educating, but actually taking action and learn through um, doing to realize that how we actually need to know more of what's available actually in the market and how we could do better as well. So Phil, does that does that encourage you? You you just heard from 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 two of the sort of the the leading lighting consultancies in in the UK talking about the the amount of work that they're doing to make sure that prices can't get hiked because they're they're doing the analysis for you. Yeah, I mean it's very encouraging actually to hear that and to hear some of the things that some of the some of the guys and girls have said today. It's is it's encouraging and you know there's there's clearly a place for good quality lighting designers in, the, in that design process, isn't there? There's no doubt. So it does, John, yeah. Okay, well, that, that's that's good to know. Mark, can you can you speak on behalf of, of the Society of Light and Lighting at all? No, not with any authority. I can, I can, because... I well, let's, let's just have a base... Can we just have a basis opinion, then? As, uh, uh, things that we, uh, the things that we're talking about, you could you could make the argument that this should be, this should be lighting design industry wide that all all lighting design companies should be able to do versions of what you guys are doing and the and what and what arab are doing but the smaller companies probably don't have the resource to be able to do that should we be expecting to get more information and and more support from our professional organizations to enable us to do that I think that would be a centralised top-down solution, which probably wouldn't get us where we need to be. I think it's. I think what's happening is where clients are making demands and contractors are, are highlighting problems. It's interesting that companies like Arab and, and France and, and us in a in different way coming up with a response to that in a kind of Darwinian way that um, things get better and better. I think where the professional organisations can really add value is to be a meeting ground and a platform for meeting for the meeting of, of different minds. And, and that's why that's I'm, I'm going to speak for the Greenlight Alliance rather than the SLL is that I think that place where 
people can share their frustrations and solutions, that's where you'll get evolution of process. And I don't think that it's it's a small practice problem. That, that, I mean, yes, there's maybe some high tech solutions which are, you know big big companies will bring to big projects, but this process about establishing a brief that is user centric and is defined in terms of budget and is responsible in terms of sustainability. God, John, you've been doing that for, for decades and there are other there are other practices that, you know, Michael Grubb was a, was a start, you know, a small number of years ago and built his business on sustainable grounds uh, and, and customer satisfaction. You know, there are small companies that are very active in this field yeah. uh, providing value uh, and, and, and doing great design. So no, I don't think it's a, it's a big, it's a problem that only big companies can solve, and therefore you need a centralised and professional organisation to save it. Good to hear. Good to hear. I, think, I just want to chip in. I can see a sort of Graham rolling your eyes. I mean, I think that it's so rare to have people like Graham and Phil in the room, and for me, that's that's where the conversation needs to go. Is that we need to hear more about what what it would take for them to understand the value and to 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 to, to kind of bring these conversations into their world because it's you, you guys are all busy you all you've all got other lighting's just one line item graham what do you think i just see you kind of go well i, I was because you, obviously people live in a different world to me on this call in some ways but florence made it clear earlier is that we need data and we we, we acknowledge as a contractor uh, and and the fact we've got an enlightened developer in our group is the fact that the absence of data really hurts us because we can't defend the red line because there's not the energy certifications not validated it's not clear how many products are validated all of those things leave us and i said earlier the lack of clarity so you can get wrapped up in light uh, design all you like but the reality is at the coal face the m&e contractor is driving the market and the fact that you've named him elevates the price and then we go through this rigmarole of trying to bring it back down when all we want is clarity that says one we can make the scope three for morgan sindel in our sold product is about 1.4 million tons of carbon so we do need the data to make sure now is anybody measuring the fact that the the, the light products came from the other side of the world not at the moment they're not so you know whether Somebody in the design phase did it. Nobody else is. Thank you. I think that's a really valuable. I mean, that's 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 what this conversation is about. Is that we can talk to ourselves about you know lighting guide this that and the other, but until the M and E and I mean people like Graham and and Phil and and these guys kind of get what they need to make different decisions and, and your heart you what you, you want to do it right it's not that you don't it's just that we're not giving you it's not working yet what we have to offer isn't working yet i think correct it's useful to, to hear that and that's what that's why we need to it's a reality check it's really important okay florence and, and then we'll go on to the q a's i think Yes, thank you. So just want to add one more point um, about yes, measuring getting data is is important. And it's only that that we can help the rest of the value chain to de-risk as well, because with the change, there's a lot of uncertainty and ambiguity that come with it. Who wants to be the first one to jump? So it is how we can sort of use this to de-risk and then model to make sure that it will work. But also is 
the, the driver of a change going to right from the beginning. It's not just the projecting climate change. There are some immediate issues about short of resources. We, we can't get things into the UK, let's say. So delay in constructions is, will hit the profit. So in, any, in all this reason, why did the industry need to much, work much, much closer to resolve that in, differently rather than the kind of the old way of passing the baton through the spec, et cetera, is having that visibility and transparency much earlier on what is required on what project type, where, so that industry can also respond together, together to, to, to make ourselves ready. It's just so, such an important thing to do. Guy makes the point, what, what data do we need exactly? I think that's, uh, sorry, Simon, your hand's up. So, sorry, I've jumped in. Sorry, I can partly answer that question as well. So one of the things which has come out of this call and discussion is obviously about the role of the lighting designer. And I think it's, it, it, they can and should be the best person to advise. But in my experience in sustainability over the last 10 years, the consistency of the data that's provided by lighting designers is not always the same in terms of what they're able to provide in terms of energy, carbon, circularity data should be should be at the forefront. The, the guidance from the Society of Lighting is significantly ahead of most other MEP systems. So the SIBSI circular economy guide that came out recently is, is only on lighting. The rest of the industry is way behind. So there should be this data coming forward from lighting designers, but on projects historically, and this is probably what Phil's alluding to, is that it's not always a forthcoming. In terms of operational energy, quite often lighting designers refer to the MEP and then are not providing the information. Embodied carbon, they're not able to provide the same level of data that you'd get from a structural engineer or an architect in terms of the structure and cladding. So I, I think lighting designers is ahead of a lot of the rest of the industry, but I just don't think there's the full consistency. So I think the, the guidance is there. The members need to be providing that high level of advice and guidance to clients so that when a person like myself as a sustainability consultant is asking for that information, that information is readily available and is useful for the clients rather than deferring to other design team members to provide that information. Yeah. yeah, and I think there's another point that, that Gayatri made earlier, which is about post-occupancy. I mean, it's all very well. I mean, there was a brilliant survey which showed that only, I think, 90% of buildings don't actually deliver on the promises that they made on the on the specification. So it's all, we can, we can promise the, you know, Ferrari performance, but actually if it's still a bicycle, it's in, in use and the lights are on and the sensors aren't working, then, then I think we're doing ourselves as a disservice as well. So... Yeah, I mean, I think post-occupancy and, and how buildings really work and whether they deliver on their promises is something else we need to be a lot, lot, more, lot more honest about, actually. Yeah. Can we just remind ourselves as well that 10 years ago when I was standing up on a platform talking about sustainability, the only comment you got back from the audience was, who cares? John, you're the only one talking about it. Why should we, why should we bother? This is manufacturers now. Now I'm hearing manufacturers telling me that they're getting involved with environmental product declarations because they want to be on a tender document and they can't get on that tender unless they've got epds that's a hell of a change huge change but we're still in it you know it, it it is still hard times because manufacturers are late to the party why because they wouldn't listen to me 10 years ago but the other i'm thing not bitter but the, can we do <laughs> some q and a's 
Yeah, I mean, one, one, I just want to make another point about post-occupancy and life cycle, I think somebody else has said, is that the lighting industry itself is quite keen on selling the latest thing. So saying that this has got a five or a 10 year life, actually knowing that they're going to be trotting out something else which is supposed to be newer and better, it, it's really hard to sell a long-term solution because it's that the, the, the market is designed to shift boxes. Anyway, so that's another, that's another point. I'm just aware of the time. It's about 25 past, isn't it? So I'm wondering if one solution would be for us to just have a, a, a quick kind of comment from everybody. I can see Gertrude's hands up, Gertrude's hands up, and then we can uh, maybe have everybody just give a couple of minutes what they've learned from this, what they think could change in a positive way before we wrap up. Is that what, are you happy with that, John? Yeah, of course. My hand was up, uh, not for the closing, but I can, I can, I can get started with that. I wanted to continue a thread that Florence and Shelley brought up, and I've heard coming up over and over again when I, when I was on a call a couple of weeks ago with the Department of Energy here. Is why are we changing our fixtures? Why are we reinventing the wheel? Why are we not using what we already have? That is the most sustainable way forward. Is there a reason for us to change out everything and put the newest, uh, most coolest circadian lighting system? No, we don't need the tunable lighting for circadian. We need windows. So why is it, why are we um, always trying to kind of go behind the next shiny thing when we can use what we already have? So that's my question. And I think, and as a closing, I just want to say that lighting designers and the lighting industry has so much power, so much more power than I hear in this call, based on um, my work with all the other concepts, there are 10 concepts in well, lighting is the most united and the most progressive and futuristic. And we can come together and really make a change. And it's not like who's doing this and who's doing what, everybody knows what we need to do, humans, and the environment. Humans at the center of the circular economy. We all know it. Why can't we just, you know, do it? I think I honestly have full faith that the lighting industry is going to lead the way. Back to you, Shelley. Over to you, John. Did you have... Right, okay, well, let's, let's do this in the same order as we came in, shall we? So, Graham, what, what have you, what can you take away from the last 90 minutes? The negatives are that we've still got, we've still got a long way to go in terms of making the collaboration effective. But the, but what I am heartened by is that the strong message that's coming out from all the speakers uh, is that, that there is a real positive future that we, and leadership from the lighting sector will help the other parts and the sectors and the categories uh, that we're involved in across the trade. So it's increased collaboration. This call has made a difference already. And if we can not do it as a one-off, and progress it maybe that's the way forward i like the sound of that phil yeah i think for us like like i said at the start we we want to create the best quality buildings places we can the, the most sustainable vibrant places and we have a hell of a lot to think about when we're doing that and if we can work with designers manufacturers of particular elements like lighting that enable us to do that make our lives easier then we're all ears, you know, there's absolutely no reluctance to bring specialists in. So yeah, it's been great, actually really positive to hear the sort of expertise that is available and out there. And I just encourage anyone who, who wants to have a chat with us who, who think we can help with that, 
to, to give us a shout because that's we're, we're always looking for advice and assistance to, to do that. So, yeah, I think it's been really positive, actually, John, in that respect. That, so, yeah, really good discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Simon. Yeah, I think there's a lot of positives to take from it. And just I didn't mention at the beginning, one of the hats I wear is um, chair of the SIBSI Knowledge Generation Panel. And the lighting community is by far the most active community within SIBSI, producing the most information and, and most aware of what's going on with circular economy and energy. And I think the opportunity to get your voice heard uh, around the table is definitely there. It's just having those facts and data to support what you're saying and provide that information to clients like Phil would be hugely valuable and, and they definitely take that on board and it's just making sure that you have that data and those, that information to hand or, or, or when clients ask for it I think that's the vital thing. Okay thank you. David? Yeah I, I think it's really interesting to hear different, different viewpoints. I think some of the challenges that people are facing I don't see, I don't, I think that all of these things are fairly easily resolved. And I think whether it's carbon footprint, choosing a product that's not shipped across or whether it's got DALI 2 in it now or otherwise, I think these are all, goes back to the employer's requirements that, that we kind of work with. So I think I'm not surprised with some of the comments that are made. And I think that it's really nice that, you know, I think everyone sort of said, yeah, fine, interesting. There's maybe a different ways of doing things. And I suppose that's kind of one of the reasons that so I, I, we do what we do. So, yeah, I, mean, I think it's great to keep the conversation going. And I think to understand more about what the bar what barriers people see so we can maybe, you know, offer a challenge to that. And, and perhaps there's maybe some joined up thinking. OK, Florence. So... Well, what we can be reasonably certain about about lighting design is that using less material, designing more effective and healthier lighting, that reusable lasts longer, are key to supporting the transition, using circular principles to transition to zero carbon economy. So while we are still designing the shiny, beautiful buildings and, and light fixtures, it is really now that we need to really think about the long term. And we need to think about how we can really put in this golden thread that is an industry-wide approach, something that will really last with good quality. So to do that, we need to have an open framework, some kind of data, open data framework that draws on all our knowledge around this table, the known and the unknown risk, and any maybe research gaps that we have of how to reuse potential fixtures or materials or lighting components down to the lighting components. And, and this framework could possibly be used as a tool during design and consultation process in the future and start to embrace all the existing lighting stocks we have, starting from now becoming existing, as the healthy light banks that perhaps the industry can draw on in the future the way how we specify as well. So. That may be a, a kind of dream, but let's see. I, yeah, it's the kind Thank of you. dream I like. Mark, finish us off. I'm going to finish in a circular fashion um, by reiterating what Graham said at the beginning, which is I think collaboration is key. I think the two things I've heard from takeaway, data and collaboration. Data is not as easy as it seems. I think, I think it's quite difficult to get hold of, but I think it should be Picking up Florence just said if it was open and available, then it would become quickly transparent and auditable and reliable. So I think that collaboration in data availability would be great. But more immediately, I would welcome everyone to join in the 
Greenlight Alliance, particularly, you know, the contractors and developers here, because it is for everyone. And I think critically, the, the, the it, lighting is not, don't do it just because of the lighting, because the lighting is a small part of your world. Do it because lighting are leading the way, may able, able to help you solve other problems like concrete and structure and, you know, the, the other really, really big number players in, in the carbon debates and other sustainable debates. So, yeah, carry on talking to us because we're, we're, we're a nice bunch and we listen. We do. We're, very, we're a very nice bunch. Shelley, <laughs> say, say, say thank you to all the nice people. I will. I, I, there's a gentleman called Kenneth who raised his hand. Do you want to just say anything there, Kenneth? Just for you disagreeing. Oh, okay. Go on. Hello, hi. Okay. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Go on, Kenneth. Can you can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. I just wanted to say that I appreciate this 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 webinar. And what I'm really I just wanted to highlight is the the issue of uh, circular economy and how it fits in with the challenges that we've have experienced myself, especially with the new LED fittings that, you know, I recently specified only for them to, to fail. So I was talking to my, to, to okay. I, the, sorry. Oh, that, that's okay. I think um, if you'd like to just maybe share that question, I think what I might do is to share that with the other members of the team later on, if that's all right. I'm just aware of the, the time. Okay. Is that okay? Okay, thank you. Yes, thank you very much. If you'd like to send me the question, then I'll then I'll share it later on. Thank okay, you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you to everybody. And uh, I just realised you're going to get into a more detailed conversation. So, thank you all very much indeed for for being part of this conversation today. And yeah, as as, as you said there, Graham, let's hope it's not a one off and that we continue to to do something together. So, uh, thank you and thank you so much, John, for for being my co-host. That was uh, really great. Thank you all. All right. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, guys. Thank you. <laughs> Get out of here, Langdon. I'm going.